you know, one of the things I think folks fail to understand, and because it is so new, is genomics is really clinical standard of care in oncology right now. And that's new. You know, a few years ago, it was less so. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Well, hello, and it's great that you're joining me today on the Genomics Podcast. If this is your first time listening to our show, we talk with scientific and clinical experts to discuss how genomics technologies are impacting their research and clinical practice. In today's episode 57, we'll be discussing the role of genomics in understanding cancer. So next-generation sequencing, or NGS genomic assays, can provide oncologists a more comprehensive genetic profile of a given tumor. And these assays, or panels as they're sometimes called, are also supplanting older technologies that detect one or maybe a handful of genetic mutations at most. And these are assays like Sanger sequencing or PCR or microarray or FISH. But how does all of this work in practice? I mean, how do pathologists decide whether and how to implement NGS in a clinical pathology lab setting? And how do they use NGS to extract meaningful information from a particular cancer or tumor sample? And what's the impact of this technology, not just for patients or for clinicians, but for the entire healthcare ecosystem? Well, to talk more about this, I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. Brian Pining to the show. Brian is Technical Director of Clinical Genomics at the Providence Cancer Institute in Portland, Oregon. His clinical work focuses on expanding access to clinical genomics testing to patients in need across one of the largest healthcare systems in the United States. Listen to Brian explain how NGS is changing the standard of care in oncology. Brian Pining, I want to welcome you to the Genomics Podcast. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Before we get into a discussion on cancer diagnostics and on on what you do in your lab, can you just spend a few moments and sort of introduce yourself and explain how you became involved in molecular pathology? I am a geneticist and computational biologist by training, and I work at the Providence St. Joseph Health Clinical Genomics Laboratory based out of Portland, Oregon. So we do clinical genomics serving the Providence St. Joseph Healthcare System, which is the third largest nonprofit healthcare system in the United States. And one of our main missions is to bring genomic sequencing to our patient population as widely as possible. My training, as I mentioned, was in genetics and molecular biology and computational biology. And so I trained at the University of Washington and Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center mainly doing genomics and, and genetics and proteomics. I did my postdoctoral training in Mike Snyder's group at Stanford University, where we were doing what we call integrative personal omics profiling. This is doing basically every type of omics under the sun on our patients at Stanford and integrating those data sets and really finding really novel insights into human biology just based on the fact that we could profile millions, almost billions of biomolecules simultaneously. 
you talked a little bit about folks have kind of a poor understanding of the role of genomics in cancer. And I think even the role of genomics in the clinic in general is not particularly well understood. You know, one of the things I think folks fail to understand, and because it is so new, is genomics is really clinical standard of care in oncology right now. And that's new. You know, you know, a few years ago, it was less so. Really, the key focus is identifying mutations in the tumor that are critical weaknesses for that tumor that can be targeted via targeted therapies. So these new classes of precision oncology therapies. So, so moving away from giving everyone chemo and radiation and really building a personalized treatment plan for cancer patients. And, and that's really been where genomics has had a significant amount of success in the clinic. There are a lot of biomarkers in medicine, so cholesterol levels, it's a biomarker. But in what you do at Providence, how would you describe what a biomarker is for cancer? In oncology, a biomarker can mean a couple different things. And so we have biomarkers for early detection of cancer. And so that can be really any type of biomolecule that is coming from a not-yet-diagnosed tumor or due to a biological process in response to a patient's cancer that we can detect, typically in non-invasive means, so circulating fluids such as plasma, serum, etc. Then we also have biomarkers for treatment, so prognostication, prediction, and diagnosis. And so that's usually when a patient has cancer. And that's, for the most part right now, genomic-based. So these can be specific mutations in the tumor, sensitize that tumor to a particular type of targeted therapy. So one of the classic examples of that is EGFR mutations. And so there's various classes of those that render tumors sensitive to EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Research and, and clinical approaches are showing that cancer is a really heterogeneous disease. I mean, it's almost every patient has a unique kind of tumor at the genetic level. So given the backdrop of that heterogeneity, can you talk a little bit more about the value of, I don't know if you want to call it a comprehensive look at the genetic signatures of tumors, but the value of looking at lots of different genetic markers. Yeah, the, there's significant value. And, and, you know, there's a couple different reasons why we need to look at a broad class of markers. Number one is exactly what you said, Paul, is, is tumor heterogeneity. So tumors can consist of many subclones with different potentially targetable mutations inherent in them. Another factor is really diversity in tumor drivers. And so while there are, there are a handful of really kind of classic tumor drivers, EGFR, KRAS, ALK, et cetera, and, you know, that's just in lung, there are really broad classes of additional mutations that are only present in a small subset of patients. But when we flag these mutations, there are potentially specific treatments available that are highly effective. So, you know, just in the last year, there's been multiple approvals for classes of inhibitor drugs that inhibit the NTRAC family of targets. And so patients that harbor a fusion rearrangement in NTRAC 1, 2, or 3 genes that are treated with these therapies, for the most part, do very, very well. And those are mutations that occur 
in probably one out of something like a thousand patients. Oh, wow. So we see a couple of them a year in clinic. But for those patients, that makes a huge difference. But when we uncover those mutations, the patients do really well. Yeah. Wow. So let's talk briefly about how you do your work in your lab, right? And even getting down to the level of what sample you have. So there's a couple different types of samples. So we have biopsies, and and so those, they can be anything from really tiny, what we call needle core biopsies, or fine needle aspirates, all the way to rather larger surgical resection specimens. So when, when a patient has undergone surgery, a piece of that tissue is then sent to pathology and then sent on to genomics. How do you extract genomic information from those samples? Yeah, so so it's a fairly involved process, but very standard throughout the field. And for the most part, we work in formal and fixed paraffin embedded tissues, or FFPE. And so an FFPE tissue is created when a biopsy sample is taken in the clinic. That tissue is then placed in formalin, which is a preservative. It renders that tissue inert and then actually embedded in a paraffin block, so a block of paraffin wax. And that's used for a couple things. So that's used for diagnostic pathology. So glass slides are then cut from small pieces of tissue off that formalin block, and a pathologist will then order specific stains, protein markers, etc., and assess that tumor microscopically. Those specimens are also used for next-generation sequencing in the clinic. And so from there, we will get additional slides from that tissue block. We will then deparaffinize that tissue, extract DNA, extract RNA, potentially extract protein from that tissue. And so those materials are then go into a DNA or RNA-seq library that then are loaded onto a next-gen sequencer. But if you have this tissue that's being used for pathology, being used for sequencing, talk a little bit about the value of looking at multiple genes when you have really limiting amounts of starting material. In the old days, a physician or oncologist or pathologist used to order, you know, a series of targeted assays. They could be PCR assays, they could be Sanger sequencing, they could be single gene NGS, small panel NGS. And so each one of those would be a separate reaction requiring a a certain amount of DNA. And that process is very time consuming, so which is not great when you have a patient that has late stage cancer and you need to make make a treatment decision very soon. And it also uses up a lot of tissue which can be a significant problem with really small biopsies, especially in cases like lung. So one of the amazing things with the transition in the field to large or comprehensive genomic panels is we can test a very large number of markers in a single NGS library. And so we do dual DNA RNA-seq libraries. So on the DNA side, we test over 500 genes simultaneously. On the RNA side, We test a large number of fusion targets, and that all comes from the same aliquots of DNA and RNA from a single batch of tissue. And it's very different from when, you you know, you'd cut a bunch of slides, do some testing, that turns out negative, you go back to the drawing board, order (laughs) order the next test, do more cuts, etc. And wait. And wait some more time, and eventually that that tissue sample would be exhausted, and, and you may not have an answer at that point. Can you talk a little bit about what the impact is for those patients of this like comprehensive approach? What, what do they see? What's the end benefit for the patients? Yeah, so the end benefit for the patients, I think the main benefit 
is we have all the answers about the molecular portrait of that patient's tumor up front. Whereas, you know, you don't have to go through this process where it takes weeks and weeks to generate a bunch of much smaller test results. So, so we have a real strong portrait up front of what mutations are present in that patient's tumor, which things are potentially targetable. We have mutational burden, microsatellite instability, so potential markers for whether that patient's tumor will respond to immunotherapy. And that's all done with, in one assay in a matter of days. And, and so having that up front is very powerful. And it's not something, you know, we could even do, you know, a couple of years ago. All over the world, and I've talked to scientists and clinicians all over, there are always challenges to healthcare systems, and they're all stressed right now, mainly in terms of resources. And the U.S. system certainly has its own set of unique challenges. But this kind of approach, this comprehensive genetic testing approach, you've talked about you know, the value for the clinician in terms of making decisions, and then the value for the patient in terms of having that information quickly. Is there any potential value for the healthcare system? I mean, does this approach have the possibility of, of saving the system some resources? Yeah, it absolutely does. Yeah, so moving to the approach of comprehensive genomic profiling for our healthcare system, you know, many clinical genomics laboratories have relatively small teams. And so, you know, the prior approach where you have dozens of different qPCR assays, dozens of different small NGS panels, other types of additional testing, fish, cytogenetics, et cetera. That all takes personnel. You need people in the laboratory with the pipettes, you actually doing the experiments, making the sequencing libraries, et cetera. Packing all that information into, you know, a single assay really reduces the the amount of labor that's necessary to generate those results and delivers those results faster. And so really that helps us, you know, in the clinical lab because it reduces our costs, but it also reduces costs for the healthcare system because we get that result to the patient faster. Treatment decisions can get made faster that, that can potentially reduce hospital stays because the panels have gotten more expansive that can identify, we can get closer to what the correct therapy for that patient is. And so that potentially can reduce side effects of, of unnecessary therapies. It can potentially reduce readmissions. And overall, it, it really speeds up our healthcare system. So I, I was talking to, I had the good fortune of talking to Dr. Karis Eng. She's built a cancer genomic center at the Cleveland Clinic. And she gave me 20 minutes of her time. And something that really struck me is that she was talking, she's giving me a tour of the Institute and all the facilities. And she said, for her, having this ability to do the sequencing, the genetic testing in-house by her staff with accessibility to her clinicians under one roof. She said that was really important. From your perspective, doing this kind of work and responding to clients, is there any value in having everything under one roof, having all the all of pathology, all of sequencing done in one center? Yeah, there. I mean, Paul, there's tremendous value in having all this done within one cancer center. And really the biggest value is the high degree of communication that provides between, you know, pathologists, geneticists, oncologists throughout the course of creating a treatment plan for a particular cancer patient, a personalized treatment plan. And so my role and, and the role of the folks in our lab doing genomics, we're, we're just one small part 
of the overall care team that goes into providing excellent care to a cancer patient. And so that can include other pathologists, surgeons, the oncology team. And so we are typically in very close communication about what is going on in a patient's particular tumor molecular portrait, as well as, you know, other care decisions. You know, I think when samples are sent out to outside reference labs, that outside lab only gets a, a really small snapshot into that patient's care history. It's different from in the system where, where we have the entirety of the electronic medical record to consult in relation to that patient's cancer. You know, typically an outside lab won't know that the patient had multiple cancers beforehand, you know, if, if that's the case, or what therapeutics they've been on in the past. And, you know, one of the other big reasons for keeping genomics in-house is it creates a valuable resource. So, so I also am a faculty member at, the, at our Cancer Research Institute. I run a, a separate research-focused laboratory there. And, you know, we're focused on really taking genomics data sets coupled with other types of omics profiling, proteomics, transcriptomics, to really hopefully develop the next set of biomarkers. And I think we couldn't do that if we didn't have access to the, the wealth of data that our patients are, are willing to provide. Looking into the future five or 10 years down the road, how do you see the technology and the integration of the genomics angle, of course, but as you said, all the other omics technologies, how do you see that all continuing to integrate and impact on cancer in the future? What, what excites you about that future? Yeah, so the field moves so fast right now in clinical genomic oncology. It's remarkable that there there are new targeted therapies coming out, you know, every few months it seems. And so really our arsenal of what we can use to kill cancer cells has has really grown significantly over the past few years and and I just see that continuing to to explode in the future. What'll go along with that? It'll also mean we need to test larger regions of the genome. We will probably will have to move into whole exome sequencing or whole genome sequencing, not yes, that far uh, out as in a the standard future, of care. As standard of care. And our biomarkers, you know, our biomarkers will become more predictive. And and I think we will move away from having a, you know, kind of a single agent to more of a multifaceted biomarker. And that may consist of a large number of protein targets, a transcriptomic profile. There's other facets, epigenomics, microbiomics. Not a lot of that is assessed in routine clinical care, but it's coming and, and it's not that far off in the future. And so really the next gen generation of, the, of what we call a biomarker will actually be probably quite complex. People are really interested in understanding how genomics is impacting on cancer, and, and I, I appreciate your ground-level view of how that's going on and what the future holds. Thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Well, thanks for listening today. I hope you liked our show. And if you did, why not subscribe to the Genomics Podcast? We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. You can even ask your favorite smart speaker to play the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Join me next time for a special 2019 compilation podcast episode. We'll be looking back at a fantastic year in genomics, and we'll look forward with predictions for 2020 and beyond. 
right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. 